Welcome to Volume 5 of How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 9 The distance from London to Brinkley Court being a hundred miles or so, and not much more than two minutes having elapsed since I had sent off that telegram, the fact that Kipper was now outside the Brinkley front door struck me as quick service. It lowered the record of the chap in the motoring sketch, which Cat's Meat Potter Peerbright sometimes does at the Drones Club smoking concert, where the fellow tells the other fellow he's going to drive to Glasgow, and the other fellow says, How far is that? And the fellow says, Three hundred miles. And the other fellow says, How long will it take you to get there? And the fellow says, Oh, about half an hour. The what-ho with which I greeted the back of his head as I approached was tinged accordingly with a certain bewilderment. At the sound of the old familiar voice, he spun around with something of the agility of a cat on hot bricks, and I saw that his dial, usually cheerful, was contorted with anguish, as if he had swallowed a bad oyster. Guessing now what was biting him, I smiled one of my subtle smiles. It would soon, I told myself, be bringing the roses back to his cheeks. He gulped a bit, then spoke in a hollow voice, like a spirit at a seance. Hello, Bertie. Hello. So there you are. Yes, here I am. I was hoping I might run into you. And now your dreams come true. You see, you told me you were staying here. Yes. How's everything? Oh, pretty fruity. Your aunt well? Oh, fine. You all right? More or less. Capital. Long time since I was at Brinkley. Yes. It looks about the same. Yes. Nothing much changed, I mean. No. Well, that's how it goes. He paused and did another splash of gulping. I could see we were about to come to the nub. All that had gone before had been merely what they called par polaire. I mean, the sort of banana oil that passes between statesmen at conferences, conducted in an atmosphere of the utmost cordiality, before they tear their whiskers off and get down to cases. I was right. His face, working as if... The first bad oyster had been followed by a second with even more spin on the ball. He said, I saw that thing in the Times, Bertie. I dissembled. I ought, I suppose, to have started bringing the roses right back away, but I felt it would be amusing to kid the poor fish along for a while. So I wore the mask. Ah, oh, yes, the Times. That thing, quite. You saw it, did you? At the club, after lunch. I couldn't believe my eyes. Well, I hadn't been able to believe mine either. But I didn't mention this. I was thinking how like Bobby it was when planning the scheme of hers not to have let him in on the ground floor. Slipped her mind, I suppose. Or she may have kept it under her hat for some strange reason of her own. She'd always been a girl who moved in a mysterious way her wonders to perform. And I'll tell you why I couldn't. You'll scarcely credit this, but only a couple of days ago she was engaged to me. You don't say... Yes, I jolly well do. Engaged to you, eh? Up to the hilt. And all the time she must have been contemplating this ghastly bit of treachery. A bit thick. If you can tell me anything that's thicker, I shall be glad to hear it. It just shows you what women are like. A frightful sex, Bertie. There ought to be a law. I hope to live to see the day when women are no longer allowed. That would rather put a stopper on keeping the human race going, wouldn't it? Well, who wants to keep the human race going, after all? I see what you mean, yes. Something in that, of course. 
He kicked petulantly at a passing beetle, frowning a while and resumed. It's the cold, callous heartlessness of the thing that shocks me. Not a hint that she was proposing to return me to store. As short a while ago as last week, when we had a bud of lunch together, she was sketching out plans for the honeymoon with the greatest animation. And now this, without a word of warning, you'd have thought that a girl who was smashing a fellow's life into hash would have dropped him a line, if only a postcard. Apparently that never occurred to her. She just let me get the news from the morning paper. I was stunned. I bet you were. Did everything go black? Oh, pretty black. I took the rest of the day thinking it over, and this morning wangled leave from the office and got the car out and came down here to tell you. He paused, seeming overcome with emotion. Yes? To tell you that whatever we do, we mustn't let this thing break up our old friendship. Of course not! Damn silly idea! It's such a very old friendship. I don't know when I've met an older one. We were boys together. In eaten jackets and pimples! Exactly, and more like brothers than anything. I would share my last bar of almond roca with you, and you would cut me in fifty-fifty on your last bag of acid drops. When you had mumps, I caught them from you. And when I had measles, you caught them from me, each helping each other. So we must carry on regardless, just as if this had not happened. Quite! The same old lunches. Oh, rather! And golf on Saturday, and the occasional game of squash, and when you're married and settled down, I shall frequently look in on you for a cocktail. Yes, do! I will, though I shall have to exercise an iron self-restraint to keep me from beaning that pie-faced little horn-swaggler Mrs. Bertram Worcester, nay Wickham, with the shaker. Aren't you call her a pie-faced little horn-swaggler? Why, can you think of something worse? He said with the air of one always open to suggestions. Do you know Thomas Otway? I don't believe so. Is he a pal of yours? No. 17th century dramatist. Wrote the orphan. In which play these words occur. What mighty ills have not been done by woman. Who wasn't betrayed the capital. A woman. Who lost Mark Anthony the world. A woman. Who was the cause of a long ten years war. And laid at last old Troy in ashes. Woman. Deceitful, damnable, destructive woman. Otway knew what he was talking about. He had the right slant. He couldn't have put it together better if he had known Roberta Wickham personally. I smiled another subtle smile. I was finding all this extremely diverting. I don't know if it's my imagination, Kipper, but something gives me the impression that at the moment of going to press, you aren't too sold on Bobby. He shrugged a shoulder. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Apart from wishing I could throttle the young twister with my bare hands and jump on her remains with hobnail boots, I don't feel much about her one way or the other. She prefers you to me, and there's nothing more to be said. The great thing is that everything is all right between you and me, right? You came all the way here just to make sure of that, I said, moved. Well, there may possibly also have been the idea at the back of my mind that I might get invited to dig in at one of those dinners of Anatole's before going on to book a room at the Bull and Bush in Market Snodsbury 
How is Anatole's cooking these days? Superber than ever! Continues to melt in the mouth, does it? It's two years since I've been into his products, but the taste still lingers. What an artist. Ah, I said, and would have bared my head, only I hadn't a hat on. Would it run to a dinner invitation, you think? My dear chap, of course. The needy are never turned away from our door. Splendid. And after the meal, I shall propose to Phyllis Mills. What? Yes, I know what you're thinking. She's closely related to Opry Upjohn. You're saying to yourself, but surely, Bertie, she can't help that. More to be pitied than censured, don't you think? Exactly. We mustn't be narrow-minded. She's such a sweet, gentle girl, unlike certain scarlet-headed Delilahs, who shall be nameless, and I'm very fond of her. I thought you scarcely knew her. Oh, yes. We saw quite a bit of each other in Switzerland. We're great buddies. It seemed to me that the moment had come to bring the good news from Aix to Ghent, as the expression is. I don't know that I would propose to Phyllis Mills, Kipper. Bobby might not like it. That's the whole idea. To show her she isn't the only onion in the stew, and that if she doesn't want me, there are others who feel differently. What are you grinning about? As a matter of fact, I was smiling suddenly, but I let it go. Kipper, I said, I have an amazing story to relate. I don't know if you happen to take old Dr. Gordon's bile magnesia, which, when the liver is disordered, gives instant relief, acting like magic and imparting an inward glow. I don't myself, my personal liver, being always more or less in mid-season form, but I've seen the advertisements. They show the sufferer before and after taking, in the first case, with drawn face and hollow eyes, and the general look of one shortly about to hand in his dinner pail, and in the second, all beans and buck, and what the French call bientre. Well, what I'm driving at is that my amazing story had exactly the same effect on Kipper as the daily dose for adults. He moved, he stirred, he seemed to feel the rush of life along his keel, and while I don't suppose he actually put on several pounds in weight as the tale proceeded, one got the distinct illusion he was swelling like one of those rubber ducks which you fill with air before inserting them into the bathtub. Well, I'll be blowed, he said, when I had placed the facts before him. I'll be a son of a what-not. I thought you would be. Bless her ingenious little heart. Not many girls would have got the grey matter working like that. Very few. What a helpmate. Talk about service and cooperation. Have you any idea how the thing is working out? Rather smoothly, I think. On reading the announcement in the Times, Wickham Senior had hysterics and swooned in her tracks. She doesn't like you? That's the impression I get. It has been confirmed by subsequent telegrams to Bobby, in which she refers to me as a guffin and a gabby. She also considers me a nincompoop. Well, that's fine. It looks as though after you, I shall come to her like... It's on the tip of my tongue. Like... Rare and refreshing fruit? Exactly. If you care to have a bet on it, five bob will get you ten that this scenario will end with a fade-out of Lady Wickham folding me in her arms and kissing me on the brow and saying she knows I will make her little girl happy. Gosh, Bertie, when I think that she, Bobby, I mean, not Lady Wickham, will soon be mine, and that shortly after yonder sun has set, I shall be tucking into one of Anatole's dinners, I could dance a saraband. By the way, talking of dinner, you suppose it would also run to a bed, 
The pull and rush is well spoken of in the automobile guide, but I'm always a bit wary of these country pubs. I'd much rather be at Brinkley Court, of which I have such happy memories. Could you swing it with your aunt? She's not here. She left a minister to his son Bonzo, who's down with German measles at his school. But she rang up this afternoon and instructed me to wire you to come and make a prolonged stay. You're pulling my leg. No, this is official. But what made her think of me? There's something she wants you to do for her. She can have whatever she asks, even unto half my kingdom. What does she... He paused, and a look of alarm came into his face. Don't tell me she wants to present the prizes at Market Snodsbury Grammar School like Gossie. He was alluding to a mutual friend of ours, by the name of Gussie Finknoddle, who, hounded by the aged relative into undertaking this task in the previous summer, had got pickled to the gills and made an outstanding exhibition of himself, setting up a mark at which all future orators would shoot in vain. No, no, nothing like that. The prizes this year will be distributed by Aubrey Upjohn. That's a relief. How is he, by the way? You've met him, of course. Oh, yes, we got together. I spilled some tea on him. You couldn't have done better. He's got a moustache. Oh, that eases my mind. I wasn't looking forward to seeing that bare upper lip of his. Remember how it used to make us quail when he twitched it at us? I wonder how he'll react when confronted with not only one former pupil, but two. And those two, the very brace that had probably haunted him in his dreams for the last fifteen years. Might as well unleash me on him now. He's not here. But you said he was. Yes, he was, and he will be, but he isn't. He's gone up to London. Isn't anybody here? Certainly. There's Phyllis Mills. Nice girl. And Mrs. Homer Cream of New York, New York, and her son Wilbert. And that brings me to the something Aunt Dahlia wants you to do for her. I was pleased as I put him hep on the Wilbert-Phyllis situation and revealed the part he was expected to play in it to note that he showed no signs of being about to issue the presidential veto. He followed the set-up intelligently, and when I had finished, said that of course he would be only too willing to oblige. It wasn't much, he said, to ask of a fellow who esteemed Aunt Dahlia as highly as he did, and who ever since she had lushed him up so lavishly two summers ago had been wishing there was something he could do in the way of buying back. Rely on me, Bertie, he said. We can't have Phyllis tying herself up with a man who on evidence would appear to be as nutty as a fruitcake. I will be about this cream's bed and about his board, spying out all his ways. Every time he lures the poor girl into a leafy glade, I will be there, nestling behind some wild flower, all ready to pop out and gum the game at the least indication he is planning to get mushy. And now, if you would show me to my room, I will have a bath and a brush-up, so as to be all sweet and fresh for the evening meal. Does Anatole still make those timbales de riz vue tuzulaine? Yes, and the sylphie de la crème. There is none like him. None. Said Kipper, moistening the lips with the tip of the tongue and looking like a wolf that has just spotted its Russian peasant. He stands alone. Chapter 10 As I hadn't the remotest which rooms were available and which weren't, Getting Kipper dug in necessitated ringing up Pop Glossop. I pressed the button and he appeared, giving me as he entered the sort of conspiratorial glance the acting secretary of a secret society would have given a friend on the membership roll. Oh, swordfish, I said, 
having given him a conspiratorial glance in return, for one always likes to do the civil thing. This is Mr. Herring, who has come to join our little group. He bowed from the waist. Not that he had much of a waist. Good evening, sir. He'll be staying for some time. Where do we park him? The red room suggests itself, sir. You get the red room, Kipper. What ho? I had it last year. Tis not as deep as a well nor as wide as a church door, but tis enough. Twill serve, I said, recalling a gag of Jeeves. Will you escort Mr. Herring thither, swordfish? Very good, sir. And when you've got him installed, perhaps I could have a word with you in the pantry, I said, giving him a conspiratorial glance. Certainly, sir. He responded, giving me a conspiratorial glance. It was one of those big evenings for conspiratorial glances. I hadn't been waiting in the pantry long when he navigated over the threshold, and my first act was to congratulate him on the excellence of his technique. I'd been very much impressed by all that very good, sir, and certainly, sir, and bowing from the waist stuff. I said that Jeeves himself couldn't have read his lines better, and he simpered modestly and said one picked up these little tricks of the trade from one's own butler. Oh, by the way, I said, where did you get the swordfish name from? He smiled indulgently. That was Miss Wickham's suggestion. I thought as much. She informed me that she had always dreamed of one day meeting a butler called Swordfish, a charming young lady, full of fun. It may be fun for her, I said, with one of my bitter laughs, but it isn't so diverting for the unfortunate toes beneath their hero, whom she plunges so ruthlessly into the soup. Let me tell you what occurred after I left you this afternoon. Yes, I'm all eagerness to hear. Then pin your ears back and drink it in. If I do say so, I told my story well, omitting no detail, however slight. It had him blessing my soul throughout. When I had finished, he tissed his tist and said it must have been most unpleasant for me. And I said that unpleasant covered the facts like the skin on a sausage. But I think, in your place, I should have thought of an explanation of your presence, calculated to carry more immediate conviction than that you were searching for a mouse. Such as? It's hard to say on the spur of the moment. Well, it was a spur of the moment for me. I rejoined with some heat. You don't get time to polish a dialogue and iron out the bugs in the plot when a woman who looks like Sherlock Holmes catches you in her son's room with your rear elevation sticking out from under her dressing cable. True, quite true. But I wonder. Wonder what? I don't wish to hurt your feelings. Go ahead, my feelings have been hurt so much already that a little bit extra won't make any difference. I may speak frankly. Do so. Well then, I'm wondering if it was altogether wise to entrust this very delicate operation to a young fellow like yourself. I'm coming round to the view that you put yourself forward when we were discussing the matter with Miss Wickham. You said, if you recall, that the Enterprise should have been placed in the hands of a mature, experienced man of the world and not in those of one less ripe years, who as a child had never been expert at Hunt the Slipper. I am, you will agree, mature, and in my earliest days I won no little praise for my skill at Hunt the Slipper. I remember one of the hostesses, whose Christmas parties I attended, comparing me to a juvenile bloodhound. An extravagant echonium, of course, but that is what she said. I looked at him with a wild surmise. It seemed to me there was but one meaning to be attached to his words. You're not thinking of having a pop at it yourself, are you? That is precisely my intention, Mr. Worcester. Lord, love a duck! The expression is new to me, 
but I gather from it that you consider my conduct eccentric. Oh, I wouldn't say that, but do you realise what you're letting yourself in for? You won't enjoy meeting Ma Cream. She has an eye like... What are those things that have eyes? Basilisks. That's the name I was groping for. She has an eye like a basilisk. Have you considered the possibility of having that eye go through you like a dose of salts? Yes, I can envisage the peril. But the fact is, Mr. Worcester, I regard what has happened as a challenge. My blood is up. Mine is frozen. And you may possibly not believe me, but I find the prospect of searching Mr. Cream's room quite enjoyable. Enjoyable? Yes, in a curious way it restores my youth. It brings me back to my preparatory school days, when I would often steal down at night to the headmaster's study to eat his biscuits. I started. I looked at him with a kindling eye. Deep had called to deep, and the cockles of the heart were warmed. Biscuits, you say? He kept them in a tin on his desk. You really used to do that at your prep school? Many years ago. So did I, I said, coming with an ace of saying, my brother. He raised his bushy eyebrows, and you could see that his heart's cockles were warm too. Indeed. Fancy that. I'd suppose the idea original with myself, but no doubt all over England today, the rising generation is doing the same thing. So you too have lived in Arcady. What kind of biscuits were yours? Mine were mixed. The ones with pink and white sugar on them? In many instances, or somewhat plain. Mine were ginger nuts. Those are very good too, of course, but I prefer the mixed. So do I, but you had to take what you could get in those days. Were you ever copped? I'm glad to say never. I was once. I can still feel the place in frosty weather. Too bad, but these things will happen. Embarking on the present venture, I have the sustaining thought that if the worst occurs and I am apprehended, I can scarcely be given six of the best bending over a chair, as we used to call it. Yes, you may leave this little matter entirely to me, Mr. Wooster. I wish you'd call me Bertie. Certainly, certainly. And might I call you Roderick? I shall be delighted. Or Roddy. Roderick's rather a mouthful. Whichever you prefer. And you're really going to hunt the slipper? I'm resolved to do so. I have the greatest respect and affection for your uncle, and appreciate how deeply wounded he would be were this prize object to be permanently missing from his collection. I would never forgive myself if in the endeavour to recover his property I were to leave any... Stone unturned! I was about to say avenue unexplored. I shall strain every... Sinew! I was thinking of the word nerve. Just as juiced! You'll have to bide your time, of course. Quite. And await your opportunity. Exactly. Opportunity knocks but once. So I understand. I'll give you one tip. The thing isn't on top of the cupboard or on moi. Oh, that's helpful. Unless, of course, he's put it there since. Well, anyway, best of luck, Roddy. Thank you, Bertie. If I'd been taking old Dr. Gordon's biomagnesia regularly, I couldn't have felt more of an inward glow as I left him and headed for the lawn to get the Mark Cream book and return it to its place on the shelves of Aunt Dahlia's boudoir. I was lost in admiration of Roddy's manly spirit. He was well stricken in years, fifty if a day, and it thrilled me to think there was so much life in the old dog still. It just showed, well, I don't know what, but something. I found myself musing on the boy, Glassop, wondering what he had been like in his biscuit-snitching days. But except that I knew he wouldn't have been bald then, I couldn't picture him. 
It's often this way when one contemplates one's seniors. I remember how amazed I was to learn that my Uncle Percy, a tough old egg with apparently not a spark of humanity in him, had once held the Metropolitan record for being chucked out of Covent Garden balls. I got the book, and ascertaining after reaching Aunt Dahlia's lair that there remained some twenty minutes before it would be necessary to start getting ready for the evening meal, I took a seat and resumed my reading. I had had to leave off at a point where Mark Cream had just begun to spit on her hands and start filling the customers with pity and terror, but I hadn't put more than a couple of clues and a mere sprinkling of human gore under my belt when the door flew open and Kipper appeared. And as the eye rested on him, he too filled me with pity and terror, for his map was flushed and his manner distraught. He looked like Jack Dempsey at the conclusion of his first conference with Jean Tunney, the occasion, if you remember, when he forgot to duck. He lost no time in bursting into speech. Bertie, I've been hunting all over this place for you. I was having a chat with Swordfish in the pantry. Something wrong? Something wrong? Don't you like the Red Room? The Red Room? I gathered from his manner that he had not come to beef about his sleeping accommodations. Then what's your trouble? More trouble? I felt that this sort of thing must be stopped at its source. It was only ten minutes for dressing for dinner time, and we could go along these lines for hours. Listen, old crumpet, I said patiently. Make up your mind whether you're my old friend Reginald Herring or an echo in the Swiss mountains. If I'm simply going to repeat every word I say... At this moment, Pop Glossop entered with the cocktails, and we cheesed the give and take. Kipper drained his glass to the lees and seemed to become calmer. When the door closed behind Roddy and he was at liberty to speak, he did so quite coherently. Taking another beaker, he said, Bertie, the most frightful thing has happened. I don't mind saying that the heart did a bit of sinking. In the earlier conversation with Bobby Wickham, it will be recalled that I had compared Brinkley Court to one of those joints the late Edgar Allan Poe used to write about. If you're acquainted with his works, you'll remember that in them it was always tough going for those who stayed in the country houses, the visitor being likely at any moment to encounter a walking corpse in a winding sheet with blood all over it. Prevailing conditions at Brinkley Court were perhaps not quite as testing as that, but the atmosphere had undeniably become sinister, and here was Kipper, more than hinting that he had a story to relate which would deepen the general feeling that things were potting up. What's the matter, I said. I'll tell you what's the matter, he said. Yes, do, I said, and he did. Bertie, he said, taking a third one. I think you'll understand that when I read that announcement in the Times, I was utterly bowled over. Oh, quite. Perfectly natural. My head swam, and... Yes, you told me. Everything went black. I wish it had stayed black. He said bitterly. But it didn't. After a while, the mist cleared, and I sat there seething with fury, and after I had seethed for a bit, I rose from my chair and took pen in hand and wrote Bobby a stinker. Oh, my gosh! I put my whole soul into it. Oh, golly! I accused her in set terms of giving me the heave-ho in order that she could mercenarily marry a richer man. I called her a carrot-top Jezebel, whom I was thankful to have got out of my hair. Oh, I can't remember what else I said, but as I say, it was a stinker. But you didn't mention a word of this earlier when I spoke to you. In the ecstasy of learning that the times thing was just a ruse, and that she loved me still, it passed completely from my mind. When it suddenly came back to me just now, it was like getting hit in the eye with a wet fish. 
I reeled. Squealed? Reeled. I felt absolutely boundless, but I had enough strength to stagger to the telephone. I rang up Skelding's Hall and was informed she had just arrived. She must have driven like an inebriated racing motorist. No doubt she did. Girls will be girls. Anyway, she was there. She told me with a merry lilt in her voice she'd found a letter from me on the hall table and could hardly wait to open it. In a shaking voice, I told her not to. So you were in time! In time my foot, Bertie. You are a man of the world. You've known a good many members of the other sex in your day. What does a girl do when you tell her not to do something? What does she do when you tell her not to open a letter? I got his drift. She opened it. Exactly. I heard the envelope rip, and the next moment... No, I'd rather not think about it. She took umbrage. Yeah, and she nearly took my head off. I don't know if you've ever been in a typhoon in the Indian Ocean. No, I never visited those parts. Nor have I, but from what people tell me, what ensued must have been very like being in one. She spoke for perhaps five minutes. By Shrewsbury Clock! What? Nothing! What did she say? I can't repeat it all. It wouldn't if I could. And what did you say? I couldn't get in a word edgewise. One cat sometimes. Women talk so damn quick. How well I know it! And what was the final score? She said she was thankful that I was glad to have got her out of my hair because she was immensely relieved to have got me out of hers and that I had made her very happy because now she was free to marry you, which had always been her dearest wish. In this hair-raiser of Mark Creams, which I had been perusing, there was a chap of the name Scarface McCall, a gangster of sorts, who, climbing into the old car one morning and twiddling the starting key, went up in fragments, owing to a business competitor's having inserted a bomb in his engine. And I had speculated for a moment while reading as to how he must have felt. I knew now, just as he had done, I rose. I sprang to the door and Kipper raised an eyebrow. Am I boring you? He said rather stiffly, No, no, I must go and get my car. You going for a ride? Yes. But it's nearly dinner time. I don't want any dinner. Where are you going? Hern Bay. Why Hern Bay? Because Jeeves is there, and this thing must be placed in his hands without a moment's delay. What can Jeeves do? That, I said, I cannot say, but he will do something. If he has been eating plenty of fish, as he no doubt would at a seashore resort, his brain will be at the top of its form. And when Jeeves' brain is at the top of its form, all you have to do is press a button and stand out of the way while he takes charge. <laughs>